0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com.
1: Thank you for listening. Welcome back into the Doctor's Lounge. I'm your host, Dr. Hal Schurz. Every week we bring you the information that doctors are talking about among themselves in Doctor's Lounges all over the country. We try to inform you and arm you with the information that you'll need so you'll be a better consumer of health care, be able to to advocate for yourself and for your family. Uh, the show is brought to you by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, which is the only physician led healthcare think tank in the country. Go to our website at the number 4 pcfoundationorg That's d4pcfoundation.org. And please contribute generously and help us to continue our mission to do this show and all the other work that we do nationally to support health care for individuals. Um, My uh, guest uh, today, uh, I'll introduce momentarily, but before I do, I wanted to take a couple of moments to recognize a good friend to the show and uh and to myself and to um doctor patient care and health care um a little more than a week ago um since my last on-air show um foster freeze passed away um in uh his home surrounded by his family uh he was battling a long-standing illness and um and he uh has um, left us. He uh, was a great friend to many people who have been working at trying to change the healthcare system. He is uh, a self-made man. He put his money where his mouth is and he had uh, done uh, tremendous uh, work uh, trying to make a difference in this country for people uh, without any fanfare, without any uh, accolades? Just doing his his uh, work quietly. Um, in uh, many ways, he's responsible for one of the most important shows I think on uh, air right now, which is the Tucker Carlson Show. He um, was uh, the founder of the Daily Caller, which uh, spawned uh, Tucker Carlson, and um, and I uh, and he's done so much other good things that uh, we will uh, devote a whole show to him at some point in the future, but I wanted to just recognize him and uh, uh, let everybody know who listens to this show and downloads podcasts about this, and he will be missed. My guest today is um, a very accomplished man who has uh, been working...
0: Sorry, it's a little hard to hear.
1: Okay. Hard to hear.
0: Oh yeah, I can hear you. How a little? You're a little broken up, but hopefully you can hear me.
1: Okay. Well, my guest today is a very accomplished uh, man who has been working as a healthcare warrior for quite some time. He makes me look like a slacker. Um, he is, and I'm going to introduce him as he would be introduced as a doctor and not as a uh, talking head on TV. He is the um, the Mark Ravitch Chair of GI Surgery at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and a professor of public health at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He's the Editor-in-Chief of MedPage Today, and um, he is a uh, accomplished uh, surgical oncologist specializing in diseases of the pancreas um, who has uh, done landmark work um, in uh, um, uh, cancer surgery at uh, Johns Hopkins. Um, oh,
0: hey, I can't really hear him on oh, the other line.
1: Oh, this is, I don't know, I don't understand what's going on here. Can we not, we're having a technical problem. Can you hear now? Oh, Lord. Marty, can you hear me? Marty?
0: I think I can hear you. How?
1: Um, well, well, I'm going to. My guest today is Marty McCary, who is a. Uh, uh, I've introduced him. I'm sorry that we may be having some technical problems with our connection with him. But um, in 2014, he was named on the um, list of the 26 most controversial people in healthcare because of his prior book entitled Unaccountable. And he's written a new book, The Price We Pay, and um, he, it has uh, been re released in paperback. Um, It's been named the Business Book of the Year, and um, it uh, is what we're going to discuss today, among other things, including um, COVID, which um, Marty is speaking about on a regular basis. Um, He is a Fox News contributor. And... uh, and without any further ado, please let me uh, introduce. I
0: think I've got you, Hal. Can you hear me? Okay.
1: I can hear you. Let me let okay, me bring great. let me bring Dr. Marty McCary into the doctor's <laughs> lounge. I'm so sorry we're having some technical problems this morning.
0: As long as you can hear me, we're good.
1: We are. We can hear you, so no worries, Marty. Dr. McCary, welcome into the doctor's lounge.
0: Great to be with
1: you again, Hal. Well, let me, let me just start out by um, complimenting you on your um, book that you've written, The Price We Pay. It is a book that's a must-read, and I, if you have to read one book about healthcare this year, this has got to be the book to read. And, um, and we're going to talk about some specifics in the book, but before we do... I would uh, be remiss if we didn't talk about what the elephant in the room is, which is COVID and what you are being asked to talk about now on a daily basis with this um, info drop, the the dump of information from emails from the FOIA request about uh, Tony Fauci's emails. So, so uh, Marty... Um, I know that you have been critical of of uh, Tony Fauci's um, uh, stance on COVID for quite some time. Uh, does does uh, and we talk about this on the show regularly. This is not something that our regular listeners are going to be um, surprised about. But do you feel somewhat vindicated by by um, what you've been saying with this information that's come out?
0: Um, how this is what um, this is what I would say about the emails and the revelation of you know what we've learned from those emails of Dr. Fauci. First of all, he's a wonderful gentleman. He cares deeply about this country. I just have very different opinions on the strategy of COVID and disagreed with him uh, firmly throughout the pandemic, even before it hit the United States. I was sounding the alarm, as you know along with Scott Gottlieb and a bunch of other folks, trying to prepare the country, trying to urge businesses, organizations, and governments to develop contingency plans to prepare for the pandemic rather than a sudden 15 days to stop the spread and people racing to the grocery store and figuring out where to get their kids like there was some kind of you know um, second coming. What we were trying to do was trying to prepare the country for the pandemic and Dr. Fauci was absent. He was on every news network at least 10 hours a day around that time, never sounded the alarm. And what we're learning from the emails is that privately uh, he was not sounding the alarm just as publicly he was in early March, simply telling old people not to go on cruises meanwhile we were trying to say hey we've got significant community transmission seeding this infection the idea that what's happening in italy is contained is an idea that we have to abandon quickly and and prepare so that was our first major frustration is a bunch of us were going to mardi gras south by southwest the ncaa urging them to cancel in late february and early march and we were told again and again well, Dr. Fauci is not sounding the alarm, so right now it seems like you know we think we're going to be okay.
1: So right now it sounds like he's taking the position. Well, you know, in science we change our minds. You know, to me, what he is—he is, he is changing the medical record. It's if, if he did this in a clinical setting, he would be called before a peer-reviewed committee for for um, actions that I think were, um, if, if not malpractice, malfeasance.
0: Well, his primary job, Hal, as director of NIADA is to prepare and warn the country of a pandemic. That is is his number one job in that position in the United States government. And that's why he has that title, the nation's top leading infectious diseases doctor. And it really is the nation's highest ranking infectious diseases doctor in the government. He's one man with one opinion. This was his job. He did not warn the country of a pandemic. The second job is to tell us how to manage it, and that was the most effective strategy through universal masking. He clearly didn't believe that. He packed himself into White House briefings and, you know, into late March. Um, SARS-CoV-2 spreads just like SARS-CoV-1, mm-hmm. aerosolized virus through airborne transmission. Right. It's not rocket science, and this is the task of people who track pandemics, follow them, and by the way, we learned from those emails that the head of public health, the Minister of Health in China, was urging um, Dr. Fauci to get Americans to mask up, and was sort of tiptoeing around the issue in the email, but had come right out and said it. Um, so there were many, many signs that we should have masked up early. If we did so, I think we would, we would, have, made, we would have saved more
1: lives. One last question on COVID, and then we're going to concentrate on your outstanding book. The I know that there were many people who were taking care of COVID patients all over the country. They were they were using treatments that anecdotally seemed to be effective that um, were not proven by um, evidence based studies, which. Are very difficult to do in the middle of a pandemic. Um, have you ever, in your medical experience, because I know I haven't, have you ever seen a disease where nobody was talking about treatment? Because this is this is exactly what happened throughout this pandemic. We were seeing COVID patients. We were talking about how to how to. Uh, um, Prevent the disease, but nobody was discussing how to treat the the patients who got sick. It was only supportive care.
0: Yeah, you know, what what happened, Hal, is that we basically adopted a dictator, totalitarian model of the exchange of free ideas in medicine with COVID nineteen. No longer did we have the open and frank conversations that we've enjoyed having in doctor's lounges, at our professional conferences, and in the public spectrum. We used to have those open conversations and respect one other, one another's opinions, even if we disagreed with them. And that was healthy, that was good. But what we have now is that if you throw out an idea or make a suggestion or give an experience based on uh, uh, clinical observation at the bedside, that if it was not in line with a national narrative led by a political party then you got shut down. If You got completely shut down and it happened through many different avenues and these large big tech organizations and the mainstream media that did it should be ashamed of themselves. You know, Dr. Fauci quickly reached for a vaccine as soon as um, there was word of a pandemic. We should have been talking more about Uh, antivirals and uh, oral therapies and other modalities and and research those as aggressively as we researched vaccines because you need both. You need both sometimes and with HIV we saw this before there was an intense overemphasis on researching a vaccine for HIV when it turns out that antivirals were actually what we uh, ended up using to manage the infection,
1: and that's all I'm saying. That's that's what um, strikes so many of us that there has been a a dearth of of conversation regarding how to take care of patients who got sick. It was shut down, and um, and this whole process was politicized. And that's what we need to get away from. And that's a great segue into your book, The Price We Pay, um, which is available coming out right now in paperback, and I urge everybody to go and purchase one as soon as you can, um, because politics and, and big money and special interests play into why we are in the mess we're in right now in health care. So... Um, What's this, lead into this, Marty. what's what's the the thirty thousand foot view of of why our health care system is so broken?
0: Well, I would say how that we have been given this false choice with American health care. We've been told by politicians that the solution is one piece of legislation versus another, and that's not true. Those are ways to finance our broken healthcare system. We need to talk about not just how to finance it, how to fix it. And that means we redesign it from the ground and we don't wait for anyone. We don't wait for governments and we don't wait for corporate medicine. We redesign it on the ground using the innovation of clinical leaders of everyday doctors and nurses and we figure out what patients need and we deliver it. And when you do that, guess what? the market does respond. Employers say, we're gonna use direct primary care because this model makes sense. Medicare Advantage says, hey, we're going to use this Iora or Chen Med clinic because they have better outcomes and the doctors are happier and perform better when they spend time with patients instead of spending time billing all the time. That I would say is the underlying message of this book, which attempts to be the business of medicine 101, and that is, how can we reduce costs by cutting the waste, addressing the appropriateness of care, and addressing pricing failures? If we can do that, as many disruptors are doing, as I profile throughout the book, we're going to start seeing significant movement in fixing health care without waiting for any politician to do it.
1: In your book, you mention... About the banking industry and how um, there was so much opacity there and uh, people were being kept in the dark and those who tried to shed light on it were told to just do their business, mind their own business and do the things that they do um, well. Isn't that part of the reason why we are in this predicament? Because doctors gave away the keys to the house a long time ago to special interests. They were told, you know, you guys take care of patients well. Um, Why don't you concentrate on that and leave the business of medicine to us?
0: Well, I think that a lot of really good ideas live uh, deep within hospitals, the doctor's lounges, and the medical conferences where we congregate, and we talk among ourselves. And what's happening increasingly is that there's a massive divide between bedside clinical medicine and those who are calling the shots. And in fact, it's, it's one of the giant uh, tragedies of modern medicine is that those sometimes who are opposing what we're trying to do in the name of bettering patient care, it's no longer the lawyers or the insurance companies. Sometimes now it's our own centralized management. And so what we're realizing is that hospitals and practices that are thriving, are thriving when the clinicians are designing care. And areas that are struggling and they have high turnover rates of nurses and doctors because people are not happy are areas where there's central leadership that is detached. Now you can have central leadership that's in step with everyday practicing docs, um, but what you're seeing increasingly now are physician burnout rates reading, reaching a, a record high levels, and it's not because of the hot of the work. In my opinion, my opinion is that what's driving burnout is not the the fact that doctors work hard. We all know we're gonna work hard and we love our work. It's the loss of autonomy. It's knowing what patients need and not being able to deliver it to them. It's not being able to spend the time to address the underlying issues that bring people to care when we know what they are and we know how to address it, but we can't do it because we're on a billing throughput treadmill and so there's a movement right now in medicine to say can we start addressing the underlying drivers of illness I'm not talking about preventive medicine that doesn't capture it I'm not talking about what at what age to screen women with mammograms I'm talking about treating diabetes with cooking classes rather than just throwing insulin at them I'm talking about treating back pain with ice and physical therapy more often rather than just surgery and opioids. I'm talking about studying the environmental exposures that cause cancer, not just the chemo protocols we use to treat them. I'm talking about understanding food as medicine and the inflammatory state as it relates to heart disease and even uh, cancer. We're talking about low inflammatory foods healthy living and uh, things where, you know, the hard part about chronic disease is not telling people what to do, it's helping them do it. And so we can educate a a population, we can educate our patients and give them someone to hold their hand and walk them through it and provide some accountability and consistently without burdening the physicians. It's called a team-based approach and it's working in many of these relationship-based clinics that I highlight in the book
1: am uh, I'm, I'm a, f- a few years older than you, and when I was little, <laughs> I remember that many of the hospitals that were around the country were actually run by doctors. When I started training and, um, and uh, medical school residency, there were still a majority of hospitals that had leadership that was predominantly physician leadership. Today, that seems to have disappeared, and I I wonder if you think that um, the corporatization of hospitals um, is in large part um, a major factor in why healthcare is suffering right now
0: well i think how that one thing that you, has historically united all of us you and me even though we may have only met once in briefing is a sense of being attracted to this profession out of compassion for people that's what brings the best and brightest out of high schools and junior high schools into pre-med programs and that those are the people applying to medical school that we select, and the ones we groom and um, and train to be great physicians. It's a look. It's a tribe. It's a group uh, where we embody a sense of duty to our communities, and we pass that on as we have had passed on to us through our ancestors in medicine. There's an incredible um, mission embodied in the choice of our career and in what we do. That has been what has united us all. But what we have had in the last several years is now a contamination of that motive by folks who are simply interested in consolidating medical institutions for the purpose of monopoly pricing to make a greater profit. Now, profit is good I believe in it it's a powerful driver in the market but non-competitive practices including monopoly pricing that enable hospitals to take advantage of people when they come into the doors of our hospital when they're vulnerable and they're taken advantage of by price gouging and predatory billing practices it violates the sacred trust that our predecessors have earned from the community and I'm very very offended by it as you know in the book the price we pay we took on this sort of journey to identify this practice figure out how common it was we published the first article in the journal of the American Medical Association on on predatory billing hospitals suing patients in court to garnish their wages just because they can't afford to pay. These are people who worked, we identified in the JAMA study, worked at Walmart and they were postal workers and food service workers and even hospital staff like custodians were being shaken down in court over these egregious bills among insured people who just don't have a lot of money and uh it was uh traumatic it was a disgrace and so we've gone to courthouses and defended patients pro bono and we are shutting down this practice around the country and we're going to continue to provide public accountability around price gouging and predatory billing as best we can and encouraging uh people around the country to do the same and using this sort of roadmap that I outline in the book on how to make a, a difference locally and we've got to restore the public trust in the medical profession if we're interested in the access to medical care issue. We got to re- remember that 64% of Americans right now say that they have avoided or delayed care for fear of the medical bill. That's a disgrace. That's a disgrace. This is a solvable problem. We've lost control over our billing procedures and we've allowed uh, external folks to come in and handle that, and they have not been good stewards of that process in some of the medical centers out there. Now, others have done well and let the market reward that, but taking advantage of people at a time when they come into our hospitals sick, uh, it's, it's a disgrace. Hospitals were built by churches and houses of worship. They were built by communities in the United States many funded by philanthropists. And they represented what was to be a safe haven in the community, didn't matter what your race was. Heck, at my hospital they took care of soldiers from the Civil War on both sides of the war. Uh, There's a certain altruism and uh, perspective of equality that medicine has always embodied. And those um, hospitals our hospitals that were designed as safe havens are no longer now a refuge for the sick and injured. They are a center of price gouging and predatory billing, and it's affecting the great public trust in our institutions.
1: And it's affecting the people who deliver that care, as you've pointed out time and time again, as well. And, um, you know, the, it, to just accentuate this, um, there was a recent article. On and uh, CNN online, um, just from uh, three days ago, that quoted you um, extensively about uh, community health systems, which is uh, one of the largest, biggest offenders in um, price gouging, um, and in even in this pandemic, which is uh, has has uh, resulted in people not working and avoiding medical care, um, this large hospital chain has been, um, has been engaged in, um, just egregious predatory behavior, taking thousands, almost 20,000 people to court to sue them over, over their medical bills, which in many cases was, um, the direct, uh, result of, of the pandemic, um, so, you know, you've taken on the hospital community, but it's not just the the hospitals who are hurting um, the public and the public trust, and we've got a hard break right now. Um, but when we come back um, in just a moment, I want you to go through some of the other industries that are hurting patients, um, such as... Um, the pharmacy and, um, and uh, the air ambulances, things that you've written about in your book which just were mind-boggling and eye-opening to me because I didn't know about some of these like air, the air ambulance scam. So, so um, preparing you, Dr. Macri, for for that when we come back in the next segment in the Doctor's Lounge, please stay with us. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients, dedicated to fighting for your healthcare freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, Please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs the number 4 patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you.
0: listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back into the Doctor's Lounge. We may be having a little bit of um, uh, problems with our audio today, and if we are, I apologize. I think that most of this is coming through pretty well. Um, we have with us today our uh, guest, uh, Dr. Marty Macquarie, who is the uh, professor of uh, surgery and uh, public health at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Um, he is um, a uh, health care expert, a leading expert on the issues that are facing our broken healthcare system and has re-released his um, uh, outstanding book, The Price We Pay, uh, in paperback with some uh, uh, new additions to it which uh, uh, updated to where we are right now including COVID and I urge everybody and I mean everybody that if I, I think that this is one of the most um, uh, informative books on healthcare that you can possibly read to uh, uh, inform yourself about what the problems in healthcare are, and uh, you should get a copy and share it with um, people that you know are interested in this. Um, Marty, when we when we left off, we were talking about um, the uh, egregious behavior of hospitals um, and how they have um, uh, breached the uh, public trust in healthcare, but they're not the only ones. And I think one of the most um, difficult issues for individuals these days has to do um, with their drugs and their drug plans and the high cost of medicines. And that is also a national disgrace. And I'm going to give you um, uh, op- open time to try to um, unpack this for people, if you would.
0: Yeah, so I think how what we've seen is the business model of price gouging dominate healthcare care in so many different areas. You know, a lot of people are getting rich in health care. As a matter of fact, everybody's getting rich pretty much in healthcare. Except doctors. Except for, except for the patient. Uh, we're seeing um, large uh, middlemen that we have never really understood in, in clinical medicine. They're called pharmacy benefit managers engage in what we call spread pricing. It's a practice that is very obvious. It's clear. And it's ripping off American businesses who are footing the tab of these pharmacy benefit managers. But um, businesses are not savvy enough to shop more competitively for more honest and transparent pharmacy benefit manager plans. In fact, all PBMs claim to be transparent, but the reality is that most businesses are getting ripped off by the big carriers who engage in spread pricing of marking up drugs uh, in in their pharmacy um, point of sale. Uh, and they're flipping that bill to the employers in a way that they can't really understand all these doses and medications and frequencies and biosimilars. So that's something that can be fixed. That's an easy fix because it just requires getting business CEOs to make better purchasing decisions on their PBMs. Same with the health plans. Why are health insurance brokers making 4% of every dollar spent on health insurance premiums? Why are they making 4% for life sometimes? Why are health insurance brokers um, presenting limited options to some um, companies in terms of what they can do on their healthcare because they're getting big kickbacks from the health insurance plans and the pharmacy benefit managers? Uh, There's a movement now of enlightened, transparent um, health benefits strategists, and they are doing a great job right now steering businesses to do more creative and more efficient purchasing of their health care benefits, including direct contracting uh, with hospitals and with direct primary care. We're seeing much better results. We're seeing the middleman cut out of the entire system and prices come down dramatically. These are things that we need to be engaged in. At minimum, we need to be literate on the business of medicine. We, we don't really get that, actually, in medical school. I, I was sort of embarrassed. I wrote this book because I realized, hey, I'm a professor of health policy and when I talk to um, people in the field, nobody can really explain health care and what we need to do to fix it in a way that's uh, comprehensive and understandable, we need kind of like the Big Short did for banking industry, the banking industry, we need that for healthcare. And so if we can get folks to have healthcare literacy, both doctors and the public, and talk a common language as we saw with the financial services industry after the mortgage collapse, we can start really driving change um we are trained in medical school with medical literacy but not healthcare literacy and simply hearing the perspective of one stakeholder that is insurance companies or big pharma or hospital administrators or pbm's um or the physician specialty groups it's usually not a comprehensive outlook and what we need to recognize is that every single stakeholder has things that we can do better on. For example, within the medical community, among physicians, we're seeing tremendous enthusiasm now around quality collaboratives that address the appropriateness of care, something that we've never tackled in the past. We've only talked about complication rates. We've never talked about appropriateness criteria and using practice patterns to identify outlier physicians so we can help them instead of shame them. And so we're seeing a lot of great movement right now in that area of appropriateness of care. And ideally, one of my goals is to have those appropriateness measures used to gold card physicians so we don't have to deal with pre-authorization and peer-to-peer and utilization management and the stuff that drives us crazy.
1: You know that that's almost like the strategy that occurs in academic medical centers when you have indications conferences for for surgery, right? It's it's trying yeah. to uh, look at each individual case and um, and, uh, and talk about it and decide what the best treatment is for an individual patient. what you're really um, alluding to is doing this on a broader scale and um, and, and rating people rating um, providers, doctors um, on the appropriateness and uh, of the care and their outcomes essentially.
0: Yeah. That's the idea. The idea is that we can develop homegrown quality measures that don't pace level. In other words, let's stop trying to figure out if a doctor needs to be um, uh, screened by a pre-authorization because of what they want to do with an individual patient. Every patient is different. Instead, let's let a sort of peer review, um, do a deep dive on individual cases. And on a big data level, let's identify the practice patterns that are outlier patterns. For example, a C-section rate greater than 50% in low risk deliveries defined as low risk by a consensus of expert obstetricians. Mm-hmm. That Those are ways in which we can identify the small fraction of physicians that need help. That's how I like to refer to them as doctors who need help. We know some folks may be gaming the system financially, but look, doctors, the vast majority do the right thing or always try to. That's been my experience. And I'm I'm sure you've seen that too, Hal, in your own specialty, is that we really have an incredible heritage. And what what we see is that doctors live up to that standard and when they see that they're performing outside of a standard they tend to auto correct when there's some accountability among peers
1: the um i don't want to leave this show on a down note i want to leave it on an up note about about solutions and that's and and if we have time, I'm going to ask you some specific questions just to close the show. But but let's let's talk about. Uh, you've already mentioned direct primary care and and some of the things that uh, need to be done. Um, it requires political will in in many cases. For example, you know I, I don't I personally do not believe. That insurance companies should own PBMs, should own pharmacies like CVS or 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 Walgreens. I think that these need to be independent and not consolidated. But that requires political will, like breaking up um, the, all, uh, the all the all um, the bells bells into baby bells. Um, does that exist and do you think that there is some political will um, at the at the grassroots level and, and what are some of the um, things that are um, hopefully going to happen that might give people a glimmer of hope?
0: Well I think how we're gonna see a resurgence of primary care uh, and it will become again the sort of highly respected specialty that it uh, was both in terms of respect within the medical profession and in terms of pay scale. We're seeing salaries in primary care shoot way up now in these direct primary care model uh, clinics and in these relationship-based clinics, even with Medicare Advantage plans. And the reason is people are recognizing now that if you empower a physician with the resources they need, that is the staff, the the front desk staff that reports to them, a physician assistant, nurse practitioner who works with them in partnership, a health coach, a navigator who can help with a lot of the routine stuff, the stuff we used to call scut work in (laughs) residency. Somebody has an x-ray that they get at a local imaging center, and you wanna see the result of it. They can curry it, they can look it up, they can um, get the image in front of you you know, soon after it's done. They can give somebody a ride to a specialist appointment. At ChenMed they did a study and identified that getting a ride to a specialist was one of the barriers for seniors getting quality specialty care. Um, they dispense the medications in the clinic instead of sending them to a local pharmacy. So what we're seeing is a redesign of care and when it works, it's beautiful. And I was so impressed uh, in my time in these clinics, Iora and ChenMed, that you know I felt like this is a story I wanted to, to tell. These clinics, by the way, Hal, are attracting doctors who don't want to spend their day billing. They converted in one of these clinics a billing room to a community room where they educate folks on nutrition and foods that they should be eating that makes sense to me why are we spending all of this time and energy identifying the right cpt code for every single little tiny thing we do and when we feel like we're not getting paid enough we create 10 subcodes in the next edition to try to increase the billing this is a a hamster wheel that we've been put on that we need to get off and what we're seeing now is with price transparency services now advertised and marketed with plain english names for the services we're trying to do that with a platform that i'm a part of called sesame care it's an online medical marketplace where doctors can list their practices and put any price around any service they'd like to. it be an in-person, a procedure, a visit, a consultation, in-person or virtual. It is an open platform. Other platforms are doing the same. And so I think what you're gonna see is a movement to use plain English terms instead of these complicated billing codes, a movement to get off the billing hamster wheel and into clinics where you can spend time talking about somebody's sleep when they have high blood pressure instead of just throwing meds at them. And I think you're going to see primary care become a very attractive profession, again, uh, resourced with the staff uh, that they need to do their job in a way that they envision rather than somebody else envisioned for them.
1: I'm so glad that you um, brought that up. Marty and talked about that because I think that physicians <clears throat> are doing this all over the country, as you've mentioned. And each each um, different geographic area is a little laboratory um, to figure out the best way to redesign healthcare. In Atlanta, I'm involved with Hip Nation, which our listeners have heard me talk about often in our next show we'll have the um, medical director and co-founder along with me of Hip Nation, um, which is a healthcare ecosystem that's founded on direct primary care with specialists involved in in this healthcare ecosystem to redesign healthcare because that's what employers who are Really, the drivers of this are demanding. They no longer want to spend 30 percent of their um, of of their profits on on uh, taking care of their employees. They they want to see those costs come down, and these measures, these these uh, ways of taking care of patients that are different than traditional insurance based, hospital based care is the only way that we're going to be able to drive the cost of health care down. Yes?
0: Yeah, I mean when you see when you see practices offer prices thirty to forty percent below what they otherwise would negotiate with insurance because they're getting paid immediately without the hassles of claims adjudication, billing, uh, appeals, utilization management, uh, billing, customer service, bad debt collection. All of that stuff costs money. All of that stuff costs money. And where does it come from? it comes from the money that's put into the system it comes from the patient yes. And so when we can cut that stuff out what we're seeing is that practices are saying hey we'll we'll, we'll gladly offer these services at 30 percent below what we otherwise would negotiate from insurance if we don't have to deal with all that red tape and so you're seeing a system that's serving everybody well except the middlemen <clears throat> and i think that's a positive trend i think the more of that we see, the better. When you're going to deliver a baby, you should be able to say, hey, this is you know, these, this is a basic category of service. Here's the predictable risk that we can build in, and here's a price that we can put on it. When airlines list a price for a flight, they don't tell you, we can't give you a price because we don't know the true price of the flight, and it depends on fuel costs and whether or not you consume a beverage and that there could be a delay in our staff might not show up or the pilot may have to work harder if there's turbulence and bill more RVUs when they land on the runway and spend 20 minutes billing for their flight. No, that's ridiculous, right? Why can't healthcare do better? We can, and it's happening. This is the revolution I talk about in the book, The Price We Pay. This is an effort to say, let's use the brain power that we have in science, build in predictable risk vari- variability into prices. And let's just have a flat, honest price. Why, you know, when we did our price transparency executive order, which was bipartisan, yes, got it signed, you know, two years ago, it's yeah. not taking effect. Um, one hospital said, "Hey, we don't we don't believe in releasing our secret negotiated discounts with insurance companies because, first of all, that's just a lot of work. It's a lot of work. We have three thousand different contracts with different groups." and if we all have, we have different in, in discounts with each contract based on who's paying, and to pull up all those 3,000 contracts and put it out there, that's a lot of work. And I'm thinking, yeah, this is exactly the problem. Why do you have 3,000 different prices for the same service? And how much money and energy and staff did it take to do all that work that's the nonsense we've got to cut out and get to honesty and fairness in medicine and patients will appreciate it when well, we do
1: well honesty what you just said about what the hospitals with the american hospital association association was saying is if those prices are released it will result in the the costs of health care actually going up how how many people actually believe that if the costs are transparent The prices are going to come down, not go up, and so they are scrambling. This is an industry with special interests that realize that um, the jig may be up, and the winners, when we redesign things, are going to be the patients and and the doctors, too, because it will be easier for doctors to do their jobs and uh, take care of patients better because that's their job. Um i want to ask you i want to ask you a couple of opinion questions before we close and we'll bring this back to um 2021 where we are right now in the middle still of trying to climb out of a pandemic um we hear about this on on uh media every day and about vaccinations and the controversies about them and um uh, what? What? Tell us what your opinion is about mandatory vaccinations. Are they legal? Do you think?
0: Well, I don't think much about the legal legal issue, but I do think about this. We're at herd immunity, okay? Eight more than eight out of ten adults in America has immunity right now because. today of adults in America have been vaccinated and roughly half of the unvaccinated or more has natural immunity from prior Serial Seroprevalence studies out of California showed that it was upwards of half of Americans and by the way, it's not even distribution. Unvaccinated people are more likely to have had the infection and not taken precautions in the past than people who are vaccinated. In other words, vaccinated people are more likely to have rushed and uh, who, uh, people who took precautions very seriously are more likely to have gotten the vaccine to date. So a lot of the unvaccinated have natural immunity. One of the great failures of our medical leadership, specifically Dr. Fauci and Dr. Walensky is dismissing natural immunity. They've completely ignored it. They never talk about it. Let me know if you ever hear that they do talk about it. It's half of the unvaccinated. So if. We recognize that half of the unvaccinated have natural immunity. That means 80 to 85% of adults in America today have immunity. That's why cases have plummeted. That's why Los Angeles had 250 cases yesterday after they'd had over 15,000 just four months ago. It's because the virus cannot jump around in a community when so many people have immunity and if you don't believe in natural immunity how are we going to get to 85 percent immunity through mandates and kids uh, and demonizing the hesitant rather than respecting them we've got to respect people who choose not to get the vaccine and to be honest with you if you had natural immunity i'm not even sure you need it
1: okay this is going to be rapid fire that what about what about inquiring about vaccination status by employers
0: well i i think vaccine passports have become confused with um proof of vaccination and i think if organizations want to see proof of some immunity i think they had a right to do that back when fewer people had it and businesses were still closed as a way to get them open now it doesn't matter and you don't want to separate the vaccinated from unvaccinated you want them to mix because the vaccinated serve as a barrier. And my concern with proof of vaccination is that, again, it's ignoring natural immunity from prior infection.
1: Um, so uh, what is your opinion about the um, the variants that people are talking about non-stop these days? Yes, yeah, so
0: there's been a lot of variant fear-mongering among people who want this pandemic to keep going for years and for everyone to, you know, be hunkered down with restrictions forever. They talk about the variance as if it's right around the corner. Dr. Walensky gave a speech a few weeks, weeks ago and she said cases are way down, but variants could reverse the, all the progress we've made. Why would you say that? Okay, out of hundreds of variants that have, that have come about, that have emerged, none of them have evaded the life-protecting power of vaccinated, of vaccines. That's the key message. So I'm not concerned about uh, variants, and I think immunity is probably lifelong, and we won't need boosters for healthy people.
1: Last question, and then we've got to wrap it up. WHO, I know you've had um, personal experience working with the WHO on your global safety measures. What what um, how has the WHO let the world down in this pandemic
0: well the WHO is one of the most bureaucratic organizations I've ever worked with next to the US federal government huh. and I think they've kowtowed to China far too much. They've never recognized Taiwan as a member country of the World Health Organization as if they don't deserve the benefits. Um, the WHO does serve a purpose. It is the de facto CDC for many poor countries, but they've done a terrible job. And I think their sham investigation of the Wuhan lab, including putting Peter Daszak, the funder of the Wuhan lab, on the inspection committee, sort of showed their true stripes.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I, I you you uh have been out there um bravely um waving this flag and and sounding the alarm. You've been a medical Paul, Paul Revere on uh on on uh the uh on, on network TV, and and uh, I'm sure you've taken a lot of arrows for some of your opinions, and so I, I certainly commend you. The price we pay, uh, what broke America, American healthcare, and how to fix it, uh, a, a, an important book that should be required reading by anybody who is a patient in this country, and everybody is a patient. And if you're not a patient right now, you will be. So I highly, highly uh, urge everyone to go and get the price we pay. It's available everywhere that books are sold. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's a, a great, great honor to have you with us today, Marty. Um, Dr. McCary, you've, you've done uh, tremendous service to um, all, all of us in health care and to patients in this country. And I want to thank you for your work and for being here with us today.
0: Thanks so much, Hal. Always great to be with you, and you keep up the great work as well.
1: Okay, well, thank you again, and I want everybody to um, tune in to our show next week when Dr. Scott Barber will be back in behind the microphone, and I'll be back in two weeks with uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Brian Hill uh, from Hip Nation and Tony Dale, who is the um, president of Sedera Health, and we're going to talk about some of the things that Dr. McCary talked about today, innovative healthcare delivery models that get insurance out of people's lives. So thank you for being with us today in the Doctor's Lounge. Be safe.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.